0: Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff.
1: And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn what the invention of the elevator can teach us about autonomous cars with Jason Pfeiffer, host of the Build for Tomorrow podcast. You'll also learn how Cold War era nuclear bomb tests are helping us solve
0: mysteries that have absolutely nothing to do with nuclear bombs. Let's satisfy some curiosity. When we adopt new technology we often look to previous technology for guidance. Like, you probably wave goodbye to a friend on the street, so a lot of us also do that at the end of a video call. And you put your hands on the steering wheel when you're driving, so some companies are putting steering wheels in autonomous vehicles, even though they're not really necessary. The same kind of confusion has come about from nearly every important invention in history, and that includes the elevator. Today's guest is going to tell us all about it. Jason Pfeiffer is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and the host of Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the curious things from history that shaped us and how we can shape the future. Here's his story about how the elevator changed our cities and how we can use those lessons today. The first elevator's... You
2: died in the first elevators. That's just that's what you did in the first elevators. You died. So so the elevator was originally a kind of mining tool. It, it brought miners up and down. And it was literally a box dangling from a rope. And so if that rope snapped, which it did, then everybody fell to their death. And even in the 1830s and 40s, when the first passenger elevators were introduced into buildings, it really wasn't much more than a box with a rope that could snap and people would fall to their deaths. It was terrible. I don't know. I don't understand any reason I don't understand why people got into these things to begin with. Then in 1854, this guy named Otis comes up with the thing that changes not just elevators, but cities as we know them. And that is that in an early version of the World's Fair, he introduces the safety elevator. And it goes like this. When the rope snaps and the elevator starts to plummet, these jaws underneath the elevator snap open and lock themselves into these divots that are in the elevator shaft walls it catches the elevator from falling. And this now enables the elevator to become a more trustworthy object. And once you have a safe elevator, it can start to be installed in buildings and buildings can start to get taller. I mean, prior to this, you wouldn't build a skyscraper that didn't exist. You'd have to take the stairs. Who's going to do that? And so every, you know, buildings would be six, seven stories tall. They weren't getting very tall. Now you have the elevator. So you can start to have buildings that go vertical cities that go vertical. And now, vertical gentrification. Because between about 1870 and 1900, which is when the elevator starts being introduced in wide-scale use, the rich have an observation. (laughs) And it is this. Prior to the elevator, The rich lived on the bottom floors of buildings and the poor lived on the top. And that was because, of course, convenience. The poor would have to schlep their ways up to the top of buildings, but the rich wanted to just walk in and get to their homes. But now that you had an elevator that could take people up and down with ease, the rich realized the tops of buildings are awesome. They're more private. The views are great. We want to be there. And so you have vertical gentrification where the rich move up and they force the poor down. And that's what we have now. That is still the way that cities and buildings are oriented. Now, next, elevators create this really interesting shift in culture. For literally about 100 years, from the mid-1800s to about the 1940s, people have this debate about an elevator. And the debate is, should men take their hats off when women walk into the elevator? And this sounds uh, ridiculous, but actually to understand it is to understand the radical new weird thing that an elevator is. It's a kind of thing that we don't experience very often as a culture, which is the creation of a new space and then what we should do In that space. So if you're in the late 1800s, and you call the elevator, elevator arrives, it opens up, what you see is not what we see now, what you see is like a living room. So there's a carpet, there's nice lighting, there's like a place to sit down, it was treated as a room. And The custom of the time was that if a man is in a room, in a private space, and is wearing a hat, and then a woman enters that space you take the hat off. It's a sign of respect. You don't have to do that in a public space. So if a man is on a subway and a woman walks into the subway, you don't take the hat off for that. That's a public space. But a private space, you do. And so you can see how the people of the time were grappling with what exactly is an elevator? Is it a public space or is it a private? Because it was dressed up like a private space. It was dressed up like a living room. But Eventually we realized, no, 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 this is a this is a public space. And this came after a lot of debate. I mean, you could go through newspapers of the time and you see people debating this. Celebrities would be asked their opinion on whether men should take their hats off in the presence of women in the elevator. One of my favorites is from Depression Era actress and sex symbol Mae West. She wrote she or she said, quote, It isn't important whether a man takes off his hat in the presence of a woman. It's where he leaves it after he goes. <laughs> I know. I know. She knew what she was doing Mae West. So I think that's a really interesting insight in how these shifts happen in our culture that we sometimes don't exactly know how to make sense of. And the way that we treat them in one time period isn't necessarily the way they're going to land in another. I, I feel like we are heading towards that with autonomous cars, like the way that we think about cars and driving and even what takes place in a car is probably going to radically shift and it's going to take a while. And for a while, the autonomous car is going to look like a car that we're familiar with now. But eventually people are going to realize, well, why does this look like an old old timey car by which we mean the cars that we drive today? They could look like anything. And in fact, why don't we start to rethink what it is that we even do in these things? I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how those shifts happen in the same way that at the time people were grappling with what on earth are you supposed to do in an elevator?
0: What could autonomous cars look like if we stopped making them look like cars? The possibilities are endless. Again, that was Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and he's also the host of Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the curious things from history that shaped us and how we can shape the future. You can find links to his podcast and more in the show notes, and Jason will be back tomorrow to talk about the weird history of the fork.
1: During the Cold War, about 2,000 nuclear bomb tests happened around the world. Those tests did a lot of harm. But they also had an unexpected benefit for scientists. A new, super-accurate way to measure the age of living tissue. This technique is known as bomb pulsating. Nuclear bombs use radioactive elements to create a chain reaction that generates an explosion. A side effect of that chain reaction is a huge release of neutrons into the atmosphere. That's where it gets interesting. The Earth's atmosphere is about three-quarters nitrogen by volume. When these neutrons hit a nitrogen atom, they eject a proton. That changes the nitrogen atom into a carbon atom. But it's no ordinary carbon. Almost all nitrogen has seven protons and seven neutrons. So when one of those protons gets knocked out of the atom's nucleus and replaced by the stray neutron from the explosion, it leaves six protons and eight neutrons. That atom becomes a special kind of carbon called carbon-14. Carbon-14 is different from the isotope we usually see, which is carbon-12. Carbon-12 has six protons and six neutrons, so it's slightly lighter than carbon-14. That means scientists can tell how much carbon-14 is in something by weighing it. The rapid rise in nuclear detonations between 1955 and 1963 doubled the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. All that carbon-14 made its way into all kinds of things, including living cells. So by looking at the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, scientists could tell how old they were. That led to a lot of cool discoveries. Like, for a long time, scientists weren't sure whether or not the brain could grow new neurons throughout a person's life. Bomb pulse dating settled the debate. It turns out that the brain can create new neurons. Bomb pulse dating is especially handy for criminal investigations. For instance, it can be used to identify fake wine. See, because carbon 14 makes its way into the grapes used for winemaking, wine from specific vintage years can be authenticated or revealed as a fake. Forensic scientists also use it to monitor drug trafficking. It can tell when a drug shipment of heroin or opium was manufactured and find out if the contraband is from older stockpiles or recently made. The technique has also been used to catch poachers. Bomb pulse dating can be used to figure out the age of an ivory tusk and see whether or not it was harvested after anti-poaching laws were put in place. Even now, bomb pulse dating has a promising future. The amount of carbon 14 in the atmosphere is still about 30% higher than it was before nuclear weapons were created. That means bomb pulse dating could result in even more amazing discoveries in the future.
0: Hey, Ashley, let's recap what we learned today.
1: All right, well, we learned that elevators were super dangerous for a long time until 1854, which was when the safety elevator was invented. That's basically just jaws in the walls of an elevator shaft that would catch an elevator if the rope were to snap. Once elevators were safer, buildings got taller and vertical gentrification happened. The rich literally moved up to get a better view while the less wealthy lived near the bottom.
0: I still can't relate to this. I lived in Chicago for years. Never, ever saw the appeal of living above like two stories. Because when you're high, you can't hear rain. (laughs) I mean... That's, that's literally my thing, Ashley. Like, you cannot hear rain fall to the ground if you live more than a few stories up, and that actually upsets me. I, I, would, I can never do it.
1: I mean, if you have, like, a patio or something...
0: Nope, doesn't count. Oh. Nope. I stayed in a high-rise for a month, house-sitting for an old boss. Wouldn't do it again.
1: I mean, yeah, I don't... I'm not a big fan of the elevator journey in general.
0: But we're not rich and famous, so, you know, what do we know?
1: <laughs> true, true. Well... The elevator was also weird because it was a new kind of space in the 1800s. We might see a similar new space as autonomous vehicles become more widespread. I mean, who knows what the inside of an auto automobile could look like in the future or what we'll do in there. You could treat it like a subway and, you know, read a magazine or listen to a podcast while you just kind of zone out. But I mean, you could have a whole party in there.
0: Who knows? Hear me out. Gymnasium. So I'll be sitting in there doing my bench presses, doing my pull-ups while the thing's moving. Now, what I'm doing has nothing to do with causing the vehicle to move. So it's kind of weird, but that's what I'm saying. people, Because like you can't get exercise from walking 20 miles somewhere because that's not efficient. But if you're walking on a treadmill inside an autonomous vehicle... Phew, you know. I mean, but how tall are you, Cody? I am too tall for any of this... <laughs> to really pan out, except maybe the bench press. But,
1: just but I mean, it could look different, right? Maybe we
0: could have seven foot tall autonomous vehicles and it would be just fine. There you go. I'm down. For the record, I'm not seven feet tall. Six four. <laughs> it's just to give you some headroom. Room is good. <laughs> we also learned that scientists have enjoyed some unintended benefits from nuclear bomb tests during the Cold War. To be crystal clear, we do not advocate the use of nuclear bombs on this podcast, but we will enjoy what benefits we can from those old tests. And those benefits include the fact that nuclear detonations doubled the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, which is slightly heavier than the carbon-12 isotope we normally see. So by looking at how much of those isotopes were in certain things, researchers found out that the brain can create new neurons— And on top of that, we can identify fake wine, monitor drug trafficking, catch poachers. Pretty impressive. Talk about making nuclear lemonade out of nuclear lemons.
1: (laughs) Yes, talk about that.
0: I won't do that. (laughs) Actually, come to think of it. The
1: writer for today's last story was Brianna Brownell.
0: Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow and you'll hear me out. Learn something new in just a few minutes. How's that for an elevator pitch? And until then, stay curious.